Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a new way of cooling electronic circuits. And the benefits of including genetic data from minority groups. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up, in the quest to make ever more powerful electronics, researchers have come up with a cool new trick. Reporter Alex Lathbridge is here to tell us more. From mobile phones to solar panels, we're constantly trying to make electronic systems smaller but filled with more powerful and complex hardware. But ask anyone that's tried to play Football Manager on a laptop older than six months, and they'll tell you that one thing standing in the way of this electronic evolution is heat. So dealing with the heat generated by by electronics in any kind of application is the problem. And this comes especially by the constant pursuit of reducing and packaging more and more components in a single surface. This is Ellison Mattioli from L'École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland. He's just published a paper with a potential new solution to this problem of too much heat. So the work is related to the field of thermal management, especially in, in electronics. Uh, was basically how to design new technologies that can deal with high heat fluxes in electronics in a different way compared to the typical ones that are done up to date. Current technologies for dealing with heat go far beyond my loud, constantly humming laptop fan. Supercomputers use cooling systems that require massive amounts of water and electricity to keep them running. It's not very efficient, but there are other options. Ellison and his team use a technique called microchannel cooling. The technique itself is not new. It involves very small channels of fluid being used to carry the heat away from electronic components. But their chips use microchannel cooling in a new and potentially more efficient way. I gave them a call to find out more about the work. Uh, what we've done here is design the electronics together with this uh, thermal management in a way that the microchannel cooling is basically designed together with the electronics in a single chip. What 
do these chips that you've made look like? I mean, how big are they? These are very small chips. They are just a few millimeters by a few millimeters square. In a tiny coin, you could fit a few of these chips with several power transistors on, on top of it. They are all integrated, doing their conversion of power. And just underneath, you have the liquid flowing. Every microchannel is aligned to a place that heats up a lot in the device. So everything was thought uh, right at the beginning to have the maximum extraction of heat when the device is on. Okay, so you can't see me um, because this is an audio interview, but uh, I'm currently drawing out what I can imagine in my head to be these this, this chip. And in my head, it's sort of like some rivers running underneath uh, the circuitry and they're perfectly aligned. And so they're drawing out heat wherever they can. Is that kind of is it like that? That's exactly correct. And by doing this optimized uh, three-dimensional structure, we extract the heat before it even starts to, to propagate. So this is a major difference compared to leaving the heat to propagate all the way down and you put in a heat sink uh, underneath and then you're flowing some sort of air to, to it. I mean, so this kind of cooling's been done before, just not as personalized. So what's the real difference there? Uh, the difference is, in a way, we could get very high performance compared to uh, straight microchannels that people have shown before. So our solution here has a coefficient of performance that's 50 times better than the typical microchannel cooling has been shown before. But the whole point, in my opinion, is the fact that we could demonstrate that together with the integration of electronics on the same chip. Okay, I get that. 50 times is a lot. That's you know, a lot better. But if you were to compare it to something much bigger, say a heat sink that is used in a computer you know, or a laptop, I mean, can you compare those yet? This comparison is difficult to, to, to say because when you have a heat sink, you rely on blowing air to the, the heat sink to extract heat. So you're basically heating up the, the entire air next to your chip. And that limits the amount of space that's available to put more components in. Yeah, exactly. So today you have your electronic chip, you have a heat sink underneath, sometimes you have a fan to blow air. You have to propagate uh, quite a, a large space before extracting that heat. If you take the layer where the electrons are flowing, this layer is about maybe a few nanometers, and that's the layer that heats up the most. So in typical device, you leave that heat to propagate maybe a, a whole millimeter before it's extracted. So it's equivalent as you being maybe here in, in Switzerland and someone blowing air in Greece to try to cool you down. And so my final question might be asking a lot, but based on what you've achieved here, I mean, where do you see the field as a whole going? By increasing the heat flux that can be managed, uh, we can now allow to integrate many more devices in the same chip. But also what we demonstrated is that we can start having integrated power chips. And this is a new thing. Today, power electronics are based on separate transistors. So now what we think is that by enabling the integration of these power chips, we could potentially have a similar impact as the silicon microchips had a few decades ago. That was Ellison Mattioli talking to Alex Lathbridge. 
Ellison's paper is in this week's issue of Nature, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Next up, it's time for our weekly update on coronavirus with Coronapod. Yes, that's right, Nick. It's time once more for Coronapod. And I'm joined, as ever, by Noah Baker. But making his Coronapod debut is Ewan Calloway. Hello to you both. Hello there. Hi, Ben. Ewan, long-time listeners will know you and know your voice, of course. But for newer listeners, what do you do here at Nature? I'm a life sciences reporter covering molecular biology, genetics, evolution, all that sort of thing. And I've been covering coronavirus really since the beginning looking at the initial spread of, of the virus, a lot on vaccines. And most recently, I think what we're here to talk about is on how the virus is changing or not changing. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the long-standing areas of interest then, is whether the genome of the virus will mutate and what this might mean for, I don't know, disease severity and things like that. But maybe just as a quick refresher for people who aren't virologists, what do we mean when we say mutate? What does it mean in this context? Yeah, I mean, you know, birds chirp and viruses mutate. It's just a a fact of life. They're copying their genome to infect cells. They make the occasional errors. And most of these errors are, are winnowed out through the process of natural selection. But occasionally you have some errors that stick. But by and large, these errors don't do anything. So it's just a natural process of a virus going out its business is mutation. And so when it comes to the coronavirus, then, by tracking these small mutations in the virus's genome, researchers have been able to track how the virus has spread through the human population. Yeah, that's really been probably the most powerful application of a mutation in, in this in this pandemic is that, you know, even if these mutations do nothing to change the virus's properties, they're a really powerful tool for allowing you to track, as you say, the, the spread of the virus, you know, from Wuhan through China, East Asia and, and the world. And you can really reconstruct uh, viral lineages is, is the term by using these single letter differences, which has just been an amazingly powerful tool for for epidemiologists to study this this infection in, in real time. So that, that's been a big boost here. And, and you yourself have been looking at one mutation in particular in the SARS-CoV-2 genome, and that's called D614G, and you've written a feature about it for Nature. And this mutation has caused some concern. What is it? What does that mean, those, those sort of numbers and letters? And, and what do we know about it? Yeah, so just as I said that, you know, all viruses mutate, sometimes rarely, but sometimes these mutations change the properties of a virus. And that's been one of the real outstanding questions since the beginning of this outbreak is, will the virus change in any meaningful way? And, you know, you had a lot of people kind of stamp collecting mutations for a while. And the first stamp that really drew a lot of attention was this D614G mutation. And it's a lot of jargon. So I'll I'll break it down. D614G is a way of describing a change in a protein, in, in the spike protein that the coronavirus particles use to penetrate cells. And so this mutation is a change from one amino acid to another, from an aspartic acid to a, a glutamate uh, amino acid, when it's caused by a single letter mutation in the virus's genome. So this mutation was first spotted kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, and people noticed that it was becoming more common, especially in in European countries, as we were kind of locking down. Now, almost all the viruses in the world have this mutation, 
And there's been a lot of intense study on what the mutation means, if anything. Well, you and you said that this mutation has become very, very prevalent then. I mean, that suggests to me maybe that there is some natural selection at play, that, that you know, this has offered a, an advantage to the virus, which is why it is all over the place now. I mean, that's a really appealing theory. But viruses are funny things. And there's a lot of reasons that a mutation could come to dominate. There's this phenomenon called a founder effect, where especially in kind of the early stages of an epidemic, you have a small number of people, maybe even one person moving a virus from one region to another. So just by chance, you know, the viruses that that seeded the outbreaks in Europe could have carried this mutation more often than it carried the unmutated version. And this could explain the apparent dominance of this mutation without having any impact whatsoever on the biology of the virus. And because Europe seeded outbreaks, you know, in, in a lot of the world, like North America, that chance tilt in favor of 614G carried itself, and it's continued perpetuating itself. So what looks like a takeover because of natural selection just could be, you know, just, just chance. And that's a really hard thing to refute. And so people have been doing a lot of lab experiments to try and see, are there any differences in this mutation compared to its ancestor? How does a lab experiment to find this out work? Like, What does that look like? Because assumedly, there aren't very many labs in the world that can work with infectious SARS-CoV-2. There aren't a ton of labs, and it requires high containment. And so, especially in kind of the early studies of this mutation, people turn to the, this kind of workhorse of virology called a, called a pseudovirus, where you take a different virus, crippled HIV is a popular one, or this livestock virus called VSV, and you put the gene for a coronavirus spike protein that has this mutation into your, your other virus. And so you create this kind of hybrid. And in doing so, you can measure how well the particle infects cells. And so that's what people have done. They've created these pseudovirus particles with the coronavirus spike, with the mutated version and the unmutated version, and found hands down, you know, these, these guys are getting into cells much more readily, I think 10 times more infectious is the top end of the measures that people are finding in lots of cells. But, you know, people point out that this isn't coronavirus. This is just, you know, an HIV particle or a VSV particle that has the spike protein. And all it says is that it can get into the cell under these conditions a little bit more easily. People say, what does that tell me about the pandemic that's spreading, you know, between people? Nothing, maybe. So the original fear then that, that this, this mutation was making the virus potentially more easily transmissible has maybe been backed up a little bit in lab experiments, but you're saying that's not necessarily, you shouldn't put two and two together to make four. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see this story develop because that was kind of the state of knowledge when I began. And then steadily you're seeing a little bit more evidence that says maybe this mutation is doing something. Recently, basically, you know, a few hours before this story was going to press, somebody made this mutation in, in real SARS-2 coronavirus. And lo and behold, this mutation makes them, you know, up to 10 times more infectious in either human cell lines or in airway tissue, something that's kind of resembling human airways, and in hamsters, which are emerging as a decent model for infection and transmission. So that's telling you that maybe this does do something. And then I think the cherry on the top has been this really outstanding epidemiology study from the UK where they've sequenced the genomes of tens of thousands of viruses from people, and they're able to look at the spread of either mutated or unmutated viruses in the UK. And they're asking, do the mutated viruses spread any faster than the unmutated viruses? And 
they do ever so slightly. They can't they can't put a good number on it. You know, it's 20%-ish, could be higher, could be lower, but they do seem to be spreading a little bit faster. The question remains whether it's enough to make a huge difference in the outbreak. And the important thing to remember is this mutation happened in January, February. This is the outbreak. You know, this is what we're dealing with. It's not about the future. It's about the past. So everything that this mutation is doing has already happened. And the reason people are studying it so much is because this is a virus that isn't changing much at all. And, and here's just a window into what this virus does and how it does it. I think that's why people are so fascinated with it. Yeah, that, that was a question I had for you, Ewan. It seems like in this instance, it is, you're right, looking back. But looking forward does seem to offer some you know, unique challenges. How do you know what sort of mutation may occur? But there are people who are trying to figure that out. And what sort of approaches are they taking to do that? What drew the researchers to this mutation in the first place was maybe this would have some impact on how our immune system recognizes the virus and, and, and deals with the virus. And remember, there's a whole suite of responses and, and therapies that are dependent on our, our immune system recognizing and blocking this virus. And so we're really interested in identifying those mutations that might hinder that ability. And that, that's not, you know, a crazy idea. Influenza and HIV develop mutations all the time to thwart our immune responses. We know much less about how coronaviruses do this. And so, you know, th there's, there's a big knowledge gap in identifying the mutations that might endow the virus with these properties to evade our immune system and, and whether these mutations will spread due to natural selection, you know? That's still a big open question. So researchers are starting to characterize these mutations that allows the virus to evade some immune responses, but these mutations tend to be very rare. They often go extinct. So it doesn't seem like they're giving the virus any edge, but in the future, maybe they will. I think that's a question that people are asking right now. And, you know, how do, how do we prevent that? One of the conditions that the virus would maybe not need, but in, that could result in a mutation like this happening is when it really is under a lot of selection pressure. And pressure in this circumstance could mean effective treatment. It could mean things that are managing to actually succeed. Do we run the risk of the better we do at fighting the virus, the higher the likelihood of a mutation coming out that could thwart us? Maybe. And I'll, I'll explain that maybe. The way our immune system works and the way most vaccines that train our immune system work is they, they don't just try and elicit one kind of antibody that could be thwarted by a single mutation. They, they try and get kind of a diversity of responses. So the thinking is, is that would be harder to evade through a single mutation or even, you know, chain of mutations. But there is a class of drugs, these antibody drugs, that are made of a single antibody and they target kind of one bit of the virus. And researchers are showing that you can have a single mutation that renders these antibody drugs useless, at least in the models they're using. And so one way to prevent it might be to give people a number of antibody drugs should they be approved and, and, and shown effective. So the virus needs to develop more than one mutation. And it's not like these combination of mutations never develop. HIV tells us that they do, but I think maybe we can decrease the likelihood of having a virus that can evade these antibody therapies if we use them wisely. That's what, that's what people hope. And there's some lab experiments backing that up. I'm interested as well what this 
could or could not mean for a vaccine, right? So vaccines are working with the virus in one configuration. Is it possible that all the work that's being done on vaccines could end up being moot if there is mutations that accrue in the time the vaccines are being developed in the same way as maybe the flu vaccine needs to be updated every year to take account of new strains? That's a definite worry. Let's start with this D614G mutation. Almost all the vaccines were designed using the unmutated spike protein. That's mostly what the vaccines are, is they show our immune system spike protein and say, you know, hey, B cells, come and get it. But experiments are showing that if an animal is immunized with a unmutated virus, they're just as able and perhaps even better at fending off the the mutated virus for reasons we're, we're still going into. So it doesn't seem like this D614G mutation is going to make any difference with vaccines, and it might actually have been a boost. With other mutations, I mean, there is that worry. You, you don't want an influenza-like situation where you do need to give a new formulation every year because of how the virus is changing. With this virus, it's changing a lot more slowly than influenza. So that's one reason that might not be a factor. And we still don't know the extent to which our immune response is shaping the change in in this virus. With influenza, it's doing a lot of this shifting because of our our immune responses against it. With this virus, it's not clear. So I think there's a quiet confidence, I I suspect, among vaccine developers and, and, and researchers that if we can develop effective vaccines, they should be effective for a decent period. That's my hunch, but, you know, data talks, you know, so we just need to figure that out. And that is something which is kind of, I suppose, the positive thing about this particular coronavirus is that it does seem to mutate very, very slowly, especially when compared to other RNA viruses. And my understanding is that's because it has a proofreading enzyme. That's absolutely correct. You know, it's changing a lot less slowly than these other RNA viruses, probably because of this proofreading enzyme. It has a stonkingly huge genome. And I think people suspect that without this proofreading enzyme, it would just go extinct pretty quickly. So yeah, it's much less error prone than other RNA viruses we know and worry about. So that is reassuring. At least it keeps it as a relatively stationary target compared to other viruses like it. But, 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 you know, viruses change. It's just something that happens. And it's just something scientists need to be aware of and not spark worry among the public. And I think that's, that's the thing is just, you know, people hear about mutation and they think of, you know, it's, it's definitely bad. It's going to make some killer super virus. And that's not the case at all. It's just, it's just viruses being viruses well let's leave it there then for another edition of coronapod and uh, all that's left for me to say is that uh, ewan and noah thank you so much for joining me you're very welcome thanks ben more from the coronapod team next week coming up we'll be hearing how minority groups can be left out of the analysis in large genetic studies right now though it's time for the research highlights with dan fox Rock falls and rock avalanches are dangerous phenomena in their own right, but they can also sometimes unleash an additional peril. Powerful blasts of air that can flatten trees more than a kilometre away. Now, scientists have discovered what makes these air blasts more likely. Using data from both ground and aerial drone surveys, they mapped the destruction caused by an air blast that followed a rockfall in the Indian Himalayas in 2015. 
They estimated the blast's maximum wind speed to be 385 kilometers per hour, and determined that air blasts are more likely to follow rock avalanches on steep mountainsides. They also found that the most destructive blasts occur in narrow valleys, which channel the airflow to devastating effect. Read that research in full at the Geological Society of America Bulletin. Scientists have estimated that glacial lakes have increased in volume by nearly 50% over the past three decades due to melting glaciers. A team of researchers analysed more than 250,000 images taken by satellites using a model to calculate the volume of water in all the world's glacial lakes, excluding those in Antarctica. Between 1990 and 2018, the number of lakes next to glaciers rose from around 9,500 to nearly 14,500. Their total surface area increased by 51% and their volume by 48%. The equivalent of 20 million Olympic swimming pools worth of extra water storage. Bigger lakes pose greater hazards to the communities that live near them such as an increased risk of catastrophic flooding. Check out the full volume of that research at Nature Climate Change. Next up on the show, genetic studies can give all sorts of useful information about people. However, in this next story, I've been finding out why certain groups of people often get missed out in this kind of research, and what can be done about it. In the past couple of decades, there have been great strides in genetic research, uncovering links between genes and disease. But often this research focuses on people who make up the majority population in rich countries, to call a spade a spade, white people. In fact, according to a 2018 study, 78% of study participants in research looking for genes linked to disease were of European heritage. This sort of underrepresentation can have real health impacts on people too, as population geneticist Simone Graville explains. A typical example is in genetic diagnostics. So imagine a patient comes to the clinic, they have a rare genetic disease. And a doctor wants to figure out which gene might be responsible for the disease or which mutation might be responsible. If the patient is from European ancestry, the doctor can scan their genome and compare it against a very large database of individuals of European ancestry and try to figure out which mutations are particular to this individual and might predispose them to that disease. If the person comes from a different ancestry, there are often no databases available to do this. And therefore, the doctor is left with a very large number of possible mutations that might cause a disease and therefore might not be able to give a diagnosis. Now, it's well known amongst geneticists that this is a problem. So in recent years, there have been efforts to tackle it. For example, the UK Biobank, a large repository of genetic data for UK individuals, has gone to great pains to make sure that the data are largely representative of the UK population. But there's another problem. Even when such data are available, it may go unused. Simon encountered this problem recently when he was part of a group trying to recruit participants for a big genetic study. So a bunch of us were saying, well, we have to be very careful about recruiting and being representative. 
And some other researchers were agreeing that this is a problem, but were saying, well, you know, if we do recruit in a representative way, we won't know how to analyze that data. Realizing that even among his own collaborators, there was a reluctance to use minority data, Simon was curious how widespread an issue this was. So he and his team looked at studies that had used data from the UK Biobank to see how often minority data was left unused. In this case, minority referred to everyone who wasn't from white European heritage. They started off by looking at a sample of 21 studies from a specific genetic research catalogue. Here's Simon's student, Chief Ben Egan, to explain what they found. And so we found that out of the 21 studies that we sampled, it's only one study that used minority data. This was surprising, and so we tried to replicate this in another set of 20 studies that used data from the UK Biobank from online repositories. And so we found something similar to what we did in the first scan. So we found one out of the 20 studies that used data from minority populations. 39 of the 41 studies had excluded minority data, and the team also found similar exclusion from a repository based in the US. They wanted to know why. So they scanned through the paper's methodologies to see if there were explanations for not including the data. There were some. The most common reason was due to fear of confounding data. In other words, that some trait just happens to be more common in the minority group, and then the researchers will mistakenly think there's a genetic component. Another common fear was that there were just too few people in the minority group to have enough statistical power to come to any conclusions. According to Simon and Chief, these are legitimate reasons to discard data in an analysis. However, they think there are often ways to deal with these problems. Here's Simon again. One thing they can do that has no risks of contaminating their results would be to say, okay, I'll also analyze the minority population separately. Now, it's quite possible that by doing this, the researcher will not have enough participants from the minority population to find new discoveries. However, by doing this analysis and by sharing the results, the researchers make it possible for the entire research community of using these results and try to interpret it. And there's an approach called meta-analysis where you can pool data across multiple studies and try to increase statistical power. And this is particularly important for minority populations because if you have small numbers in each study, you might not have enough power to discover interest in biology for each of these groups, but if you put them all together, now you might start being able to learn something. Making use of this data may be challenging, but Simon and Chief believe that it's worth the effort. Not analysing it means that underrepresentation persists even when people from ethnic minorities are actively recruited into studies. These data do get used in some research, but more often than not, it can be easier to leave them out. Simon and Chief suggest that there are several ways to tackle this. For example, if researchers clearly state the reasons for the exclusion of the data, these can be assessed in peer review to see if they're valid. They feel that this could be enforced by the journals by making it part of the paper submission guidelines. For Simon as well, it also comes down to just plain old fairness. 
that just feels wrong, right? If we ask participants to participate to studies, if we go and, and ask people to give their time and uh, you know to, to have their blood drawn and so on, and then we don't use their data in the actual analysis, I think it's, it's unfair to them. So there's, there's a moral problem, I think, if we don't use the data, which is why I'm really keen on trying to solve this problem. That was Simone Gravel. You also heard from Chief Ben Egan, both are from McGill University in Canada. They've also written a comment on this topic in Nature This Week. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat. So Nick, what's caught your eye in this week's briefing? So I saw a story this week that was showing a way to potentially prevent the spread of dengue fever. Ah, so okay, that sounds like good news. We've recently had some success battling polio and dengue might be next. Yeah, well, that's the hope. I must emphasise this is a press release, so all the data needs to be vetted by scientists first. But from what has been shown, it looks like it's a pretty substantial way to suppress the spread of it. And and basically what it involves is it's infecting mosquitoes that carry dengue, these Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, with a bacterium called Wolbachia. And that bacterium prevents the virus from reproducing in the mosquitoes so they can no longer spread it. So this isn't trying to kill or hurt the actual mosquitoes. It's not infecting them so that they become ill and, and then they can't spread it. It's it's if they're infected, then they can't bite someone and, and pass on the virus. Essentially, yeah. So this is about a study that was performed in Yogyakarta in Indonesia and basically showing how effective this technique can be. They split up the city into 24 different districts. 12 were controls and 12 were where Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes were. And in the places where there were Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes, there was a 77% decrease in the number of cases of dengue. 77%? So that's pretty effective, according to this initial data. Yeah, and the researchers actually think it might be somewhat of an underestimate as well, because obviously people don't stay in their study districts. Like, you can't just restrict people, like, in a Petri dish. So they move about between them and may have got dengue from there. So they think it could be potentially a way to eradicate the disease. So introducing a bunch of infected mosquitoes is great. Is the bacteria like contagious? Could they pass it on to others? Yeah, so the bacteria is actually intracellular, so it exists within the cells, and it gets passed on from the mother mosquitoes to their kids. So the population will eventually have more and more mosquitoes that have this Wolbachia in it. Ah, hopefully. Hopefully the, the Wolbachia-carrying ones will... Uh outcompete the natural ones. Yeah, and some of the people behind this, this World Mosquito Program, are planning on releasing millions and millions of mosquitoes bred in labs with the Wolbachia. So I think the idea is, in numbers, they will outcompete the rest of the mosquitoes. So, so somewhat controversially, the researchers trying to fight the mosquito spread disease are releasing millions of mosquitoes into the air. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, mosquitoes themselves don't cause that much harm to people it's just the diseases they carry and the good thing about Wolbachia as well is it actually prevents other viruses that mosquitoes often transmit from reproducing so potentially these are a whole bunch of mosquitoes that are really basically harmless but the next challenge is to scale things up and that would need approval from the World Health Organization and then a lot of money as well to start growing millions and millions and millions of mosquitoes. Well, after the apparent success of, of this sort of 
trial, hopefully that, that scale up can happen. And talking of scaling things up, see, I've got a, I've got a Nick-esque uh, segue there. Um, our, my uh, story this week that I've looked at is about very large or at least very heavy objects, which is black holes. And can you tell me any fun facts to get us started about black holes? Yeah, so they're big, massive objects. I mean, massive in sense of they have a lot of mass that basically suck in anything that gets too close to them, and they're black. And yeah, scientists are super interested in them because they're quite mysterious. Yeah, exactly. And they are black and mysterious and hard to study. You might remember we had recently a picture of a black hole, or at least the the light bending around a black hole. And before that, in 2016, we had gravitational waves being detected from a black hole by LIGO, which which is a pair of detectors in the United States. And this is another story out of LIGO and also Virgo in Italy, another gravitational wave detector, which is, again, another one of these rare observations we have of black holes. And researchers have once again seen gravitational waves that suggest a collision um, and possibly merger of two black holes. So what is different from this merging than from the 2016 one that we saw? Well, this one seems to be (laughs) raising a lot of questions and confusion because of the mass of the black holes. Now, as you've said, they're incredibly massive, weighing many times more than our sun, although not necessarily very big. They're often smaller than planet Earth. But these two black holes that they've detected or that they sort of worked out from the gravitational wave signal are this really weird mass where apparently there shouldn't There shouldn't really be black holes within this mass range, which is between 65 and 120 solar masses. Okay, so why do scientists think that there shouldn't be black holes around that size? So it's all to do with how black holes form. So there are huge black holes in the centre of the galaxy, supermassive black holes, and there are lots of, we think, smaller black holes that come from stars that go supernova and the remnants collapse into a black hole. But the reason there's a sort of limit on that size is that the bigger the star gets, if it gets too big, it shouldn't collapse into a black hole because of something called pair instability. They become so hot in the middle that you get fusion of oxygen nuclei um, and basically stars of that size just rip apart and just completely disintegrate and don't turn into black holes. So there should be a size limit and yet we've got two here two black holes that are above that size limit and then when they merge they themselves form an even bigger black hole estimated to be around 150 times the size of the sun which is definitely in a range where no one has ever conclusively seen a black hole that heavy before so do scientists have any theories as to how these black holes have formed I mean, there are always theories, um, <laughs> but it's definitely, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely confusing them. So, so the theories are to do with maybe since the beginning of the universe itself, if you had smaller black holes from the start, they could then start to merge with each other and then that could merge with another one and it could kind of get big that way. Or they could be near the center of the galaxy where there's enough gravity to kind of keep them all close to each other. So then they, they, they're able to merge. But it's definitely definitely a mystery. One of the um, 
researchers, astrophysicists involved, described both of the black holes as uncomfortably massive. Um, so, so it seems like these results raise far more questions than they answer. Well, hopefully we'll get some answers soon. But thanks for talking to me, Shalini. And listeners, if you like more stories like these, then make sure you check out the Nature Briefing, Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. We'll put a link of where to sign up, along with links to the stories we've covered in this week's show notes. That's all for this week, but that doesn't mean we're still not around, though. And if you wanted to get in touch with us, you can. We're on Twitter, at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Shalini Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 